I don't know if y'all are space nerds like me, but that stuff is so cool. I sit there and watch that. I'm just reminded the whole idea of God of creation is put into a whole different perspective. We remember just how small we might be. And that's part of where we're going today. But before we start, will you go with me to the book of John, chapter 1? We're going to start with verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to read verse 14 and 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of the man, all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love the, the paraphrase in the message translation. I, often, I don't typically preach from the message translation, but it says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But no one has seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. For the next few weeks, we'll be journeying together in a series called God Is. You can say a lot of things after that phrase, God is this, or that, and we're going to try to. I should note also that in two weeks, I think the video announcement actually said next week. It's not next week. The Dill Lecture is the 24th of the month, and we're going to do one combined worship service in the sanctuary together so we can together hear what Dr. Dill has, I mean, what um, Dr. Wayne Flint has for us in that Dill Lecture, and that has nothing to do about we think one service is, is more important than the other or anything like that. It's just that one has a lot more space in the sanctuary, and we all want to be together as one church on that day to be able to hear what Dr. Flint has for us. So September 24th, if you come here, we'll be directing you over to the sanctuary, and we hope that you'll be part of that with us because it'll be a great, great time. But over the next few weeks, along with that, we'll be journeying through this idea of God is blank, fill in the blank. And there's so many things to which we can attribute the nature of God. We can say so many things about God. I remember in my ordination interview, my commissioning interviews, which is similar to ordination on this path of clergyship, I was asked um, to describe the nature of God in a paper. And I talked about how God is loving, God is kind, and God is creator, and all these things. And they were at, the question was, describe the nature of God. And I didn't say anything about the Trinity, which is pretty important in theology, especially if you're gonna be an ordained pastor. You're supposed to know about the Trinity. And if you don't know, that means that we think the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one God together, three persons. And I didn't put that in my paperwork anywhere. And so I go into my interviews and they're being very kind and encouraging. So they say, tell us more about the nature of God. And I'm like, well, God is love. God is kind. God is creator. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But isn't God like more than one thing? I was like, yeah, sustainer, peace bringer. You know, I was just naming all these nature attributes of God. And they go, are there like multiple persons of God? Oh yeah, the Trinity, I believe in that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, got it. And then I passed, it was just that easy. But as we, it was not that easy. Don't, don't go that process lightly. Me and Sheila can attest, it's not that easy, but we love it. Um, as we get into this sermon series though, today, before we talk about all these specific attributes of God, I just 
want to leave it a little open-ended and say, God is. God is. That is the title for our sermon this morning. Robbins is preaching on the same thing. For these next few weeks, we'll be traveling through this sermon series together as one church in the traditional service, the chapel service, and in the contemporary service. We will all be sitting with this idea of who God is. And this might sound silly, but our sermon today, as we talk about what God is and who God is, primarily deals with words. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. My parents have an anecdote they tell about me like all the time to try to describe a little bit about, you know, me and myself. They always say, you know, Woods didn't start talking until he was really like about three years old. It was pretty late, you know, for a child to begin having their first word. I was like late threes. But he sure has been trying to make up for it ever since. And they say that all the time. Like, anytime they meet somebody new, yeah, we knew he was going to be a preacher. We knew he was going to do something where he talked because he's been trying to make up for those lost years, ever, those lost months ever since he was a toddler. And my wife loves that so much. Brianna, like, has picked it up. And now anytime we go to a new church, she's like, yeah, he didn't start talking to us really late. But he's trying to make up for it now. And as a child and, and thinking about the way I use words, I, I was not always the most articulate. I had a few slight speech impediments. I had a lisp which when I get really excited will still come out from time to time and it makes me self-conscious. But Brianna says she thinks it's cute, so I'm cooler with it now than I used to be. But if, you know, I'll still be like, get a little nervous from time to time. And I also had trouble with my, my T's and my R's. Troll was foal and trains were flames and trees were fleas. And, and I'll have these nightmares sometimes, these terrible dreams that I'll be up here preaching and, and I will just like be like a child who can't say any of his words right. Like, and, and I don't know about you all, but I find words fascinating. I so, I, this is so nerdy, I know. I just think language and vocabulary, Brianna always talks about, you always talk about how the English language is limited because I think sometimes it can be because there's so many words that we're not using. Like, think about this. One of the things that's cool about English is we have multiple words that mean multiple things. We have words that mean multiple things. So if Brianna and I were sitting around watching TV and she kept flipping the channels or the clicking the clicker and I said, hey, quit channel surfing, she would not think I was telling her to not ride on a board across a body of water between one place and another. She would know I was talking about quit changing the channel on the television so quickly. So the word channel there means multiple things. And we have that in our language all the time. And I think sometimes that can convolute the way that we understand what we're talking about with one another. Did you know there are 100,700, 1,476, 171,000 is the easier way to say that. 171,476 words in the English language. And the common person's vocabulary only uses about 20,000 of them. So we use roughly 11% of the words available to us. And that you can learn and be fluent in English by only learning 3,000 key words. Like, isn't that cool? Like 1.7% of the entire amount of words we have in English. If you learn those, you can speak English or at least understand English pretty well. And I might, I'm telling you, I know I sound like a nerd, but I, it makes it so much cooler that Dr. Seuss wrote Green Eggs and Ham only using 50 words. Did you know there's only 50 words in the whole book? They're used over and over. I will not eat green eggs and ham, says all those. And I lament that we have so many words that we don't use. There's so many cool words in our language. Like, mellifluous, mellifluous, mellifluous. 
which means the opposite of what I just did. It means something that sounds sweet and smooth and is pleasing to hear. Or high race, a homesick person for a home you cannot return to or that never was. Or limerence, I know this word. It means the state of being infatuated with another person. Brianna, I limerence you. I don't think that's how that's supposed to be used, but something like that. And, and these are just English words. Like there's so many more cool words in other languages as well. Did you know that Russian has 200,000 words? And they have this cool word, pochimuchaka. Pochimuchaka is a person who asks too many questions. Brianna accuses me of being that all the time. Italian has 270,000 words. Abio cocoa, something like that. The drowsiness that follows after eating a big meal. Many of us will experience that this afternoon. Portuguese has 390,000 words. Fofo, fofo. Something that is cute or soft, like a puppy. Isn't that kind of like an onomatopoeia, which is also another fun word to say, but fofo, that sounds like something fluffy and cute. Dutch has 430,000 words in their vocabulary. And hagelslag means chocolate sprinkles. And then in Korean and Japanese, there's over 500,000 words in both those languages. And ajitori literally means the state of looking worse after a haircut. <laughs> they have a word that describes a bad haircut. Isn't that great? One of my favorite words, though, is a German word, Grinspegriff. Grinspegriff. The act of talking about something that is very real and yet beyond our conventional means of analysis or description. Kind of like the word ineffable or indescribable, but with a greater sense of ultimate reality. There's something more at work. There's something deep in our bones. Grinspegriff. It's something we know to be true, but just can't fully articulate what it is. Like tension is Grinspegriff. Like you, you know what tension is, but you can't describe it with your classic senses like taste, touch, hearing, sight, or smell. But if you're in an elevator with a couple who is arguing, 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 and then just stops and is silent, you know that tension is present in that experience. You can't really describe it, but you know it's there. Sometimes I feel like tension when I come on stage and I tell a joke and you don't laugh. Then I'm like, I feel something. I can't describe it, but it's very real. Or love. Love is Grinspegriff. Because we all might love our significant others or our family or our children or pizza or whatever it is. Not that those things are equated. I do not think of Brianna and pizza on the same plane. But when I talk about the way I love my wife, I talk about how I'm just in love with you. Like I'm using the word to describe the word. And it doesn't really work. Or I come up with all these ways I love her or all these different ways love manifests itself, but I can't really get at the heart of it. Like words just don't do it justice, right? Have you ever experienced that? If you, if you love somebody or something so much that you just, words, it's just grins griff. It's just beyond talking about. There's some reality there that exists in a state in which our words do not satisfy the description which we're trying to elicit. I think God is Grinspegriff. As we begin our God Is series, we're gonna be trying to use words to describe God and to put some sort of meaning to the ways in which we understand God. But the truth is, God is beyond description. We can sit here and name all these different things about who and what God is, and it still would be insufficient. It's God is beyond conventional analysis. God is more than we could say. God is bigger than we'll ever understand, which is why I love that video, because it puts into perspective, like if we think of God as has created all things, if God is bigger than all those things, how do we describe that? 
that being, that thing that is, that is beyond our imaginations, if that's all that we can see with our human eye, with these telescopes and everything, just imagine the fact that God created all that. So who is this God being? I would like to think that, uh, that our psalmist that we read earlier would, would like that, would like that video. He said, be, be there like, yeah, that's what, that's what I was trying to describe. Because as we look at, for a second, Psalm 90, which I read for us right after our announcements, we see the psalmist, he's, he's saying all these things to describe how he understands God. The psalmist is saying this prayer with these big words and, and this as much language as he can to try to put attributes to who God is based on his experience. He talks about how the Lord has been around for all generations, before the mountains were formed, before you, God, made the world from the beginning of all time till the end, you are God. He's basically just first saying, God is. God is and has always been and will always be. And he says, we are all just dust. And not just are we dust, but it's God who turns us back into dust. And because we might, what something might seem like eternity for us is just a blink to God. He's talking about this God who is beyond time. So we can't fully understand God because we exist within this temporal world, but God exists beyond this temporal world. Time matters not to God. And then he talks about, he uses the words anger and wrath to describe God. For all our days under your wrath, who considers the paths of your anger. And whereas we can totally understand this psalmist to be talking about um, this angry God who's vindictive and, and has this vengeance. That's often how God is described in the Old Testament. Others look at these Hebrew words of wrath and, and anger in the context in which they're spoken. And it might be more akin to the ways in which the Hebrews saw death as a thing that gets us all. And that it's God's anger and wrath are in relation to God's eternal nature. And the exercise of that wrath may be expressed, whether it's in the exile of the Jews of Israel or manifested in the experience of death and relation to God who is an eternal being. I don't really care how we interpret that this, specifically this morning. Um, we can talk about that at length. What I, what I care about is the fact that the psalmist is just still using words to describe God the best that he can. And then he, he makes a shift. He, he turns and says, have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Let your work be magnificent. Your glory is power, the favor of the Lord. Isn't this such a vivid prayer? It's very evocative. It, it, it raises um, ideas in our mind's eye of ways in which we think about when we see God. These psalms were often sung by the Israelites or used as prayers. Their way of talking to God by talking about God. And ultimately, the psalmist is, is just trying to say, God is no ordinary being. God is eternal and everlasting. You know, we can spend our whole lives, like the psalmist, trying to describe this eternal nature of God and never scratch the surface. Because God is so much greater than our language. And there are millions of words between all the languages put together, and they would all still be insufficient for describing who God is. And that's Part of the reason why we're doing a multi-week series, just to try to get, like, scratch the surface, to talk a little bit about how we understand that nature. But we'll still fall short, ultimately, of, of talking about the entirety of the divine being because God is beyond fully knowing and description. But I think as we juxtapose, which is another word I love, juxtapose the psalmist with our John text. And, you know, normally when I preach, we go straight into the gospel but I wanted to make sure we held these texts up against one another. When we have the psalm text 
and the John text, we see the poles at which the divine occupies and it will kind of set the framework for our series. Because if we're gonna truly talk about God, then we have to recognize that God exists in really weird ways. There is the eternal, like the psalm says, immeasurable, unknowable, ineffable. The divine dwells in in an ethereal existential reality. But to state it simply like this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also Emmanuel. John shows us that God is with us. At Christmas, we sing that song all the time, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. I'll sing it prettier if I'm actually singing it, but you know, you know the song, maybe you've heard that song before as it's an old hymn, God with us, be near to us. Emmanuel means God with us. So God exists in this existential reality that is beyond knowing, creator of the heavens and earth from beginning to end, everlasting to everlasting. But what is crazy is John tells us that in the beginning was the word. So I said this sermon is, about words, it's really about words, about the word. And language can get confusing because the word for word in Greek is logos. And he's saying the logos is in the beginning with God and was God. If you're not confused yet, just give it one more second. The word was God and the word was in the beginning with God But the word that is eternal willingly became temporal, became temporary, became flesh, moved into the neighborhood. God became human and dwelt among us. So with these two realities at hand, we get a real sense that God is a paradox, not just beyond understanding because God is so much bigger, but because God, who is so much bigger, chose to become human. Like, and that's strange, That is something unique to Christianity. The the God who is above all and around all in the heavens and the earth became flesh, human, like Trinity, one of us. God is immeasurably infinite and is definitively intimate. Immeasurably infinite and definitively intimate. Alpha. And Omega, greater than the heavens and as close as our breathing. It makes no sense. It's Grinspagriff. God just is. God just is. But I'll close with this. As we simmer with the idea that God is more than we could know or be or do or understand or figure out, But God is also present with us in our lives, personal. God just is. And do you know that Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses? It's attributed to Moses, but it was written well after Moses died. All the Psalms were written closer to the monarchy period, which is hundreds of years later. And it doesn't actually say Moses wrote it. It just says that, you know, it's a song of Moses. And more, what's happening is the psalmist is trying to connect the words of this text to the story of Moses and to a particular experience of Moses' life. The psalmist is trying to connect the experience, actually, of Moses' death. Because Moses is one of the most revered characters in all of Israel, all of Israel history, all of, the, all of the Jewish Bible. Moses is kind of the premier guy, one of the premier, Abraham, Isaac, Moses. Like, Moses is up there. 
delivered the people from Egypt, took them through the wilderness, lived this incredible life, and was told that there's a covenant with God to take his people to the promised land. And do you remember what happened to Moses? Moses was taking his people to the promised land, and right before they got there, he died. He'd worked his whole second half of his life, so many years, trying to get the people out of captivity, out of the wilderness, to where God wanted them to be, and, and he didn't even get to see it come to fruition. Like, that's dramatic irony. <laughs> kind of a bummer. You worked your whole life for something, and then don't, don't get to see it happen. This idea that we are temporary is never more realized than in, in that story. Because I don't think the biblical authors saw it as such a bummer, especially the psalmist. I believe they saw it not as a lament, but as a hopeful testament, a testament to the eternal nature of God. Though our days are numbered, which is made even more evident in the fact that even the premier guy in Israelite experience died before he got to realize what he hoped to see. God is from everlasting to everlasting. God is and will always be. I love having these verses next to each other because it helps us realize just how small we are and how great God is and how God's greatness compelled God to become small like, like us. Not small in like a rudimentary sense or taking away anything from who God is, but, but to become human, to become one of these people on this planet circling this star in this galaxy among galaxies in our universe, one of us, human, made flesh. God is God, and we are not. And I thank God for that. Will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks and praise this morning that you are, and that you are more than we could ever know. God, as a body of believers, we, we thank you that you are speaking into our lives and helping us to draw closer to you. But we admit that we fail at times, oftentimes, to be an obedient church. We fail to do your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not heard the cry of our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. It's in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen.